You cannot carry out fundamental change without a certain amount of madness. In this case, it comes from nonconformity. The courage to turn your back on the old formulas. The courage to invent the future. La révolution est victoire. L'échec appartient à la réaction et à la contre révolution. Camarades, l'impérialisme, le néocolonialisme, les élèves réactionnaires, les élèves indisciplinés et paresseux, les professeurs carents, les vomissures de la contre-révolution, les vipères qui s'infiltrent dans nos efforts, les pentades orgueilleuses, Hello, this is Invent the Future, the Marxist-Leninist podcast discussing history, theory, culture, and organizing. I am this month's host, Ethan, and we're glad to be back. Uh, who else do I have with me tonight? Hi, this is uh, Alex. I'm here. Okay. This is Alex. I'm also here. <laughs> and this is Savannah. Yeah, so what are we, uh, what are we talking about this evening? Yeah, so generally we're going to be talking about racism as it functions within physical health medicine and mental health and psychiatry. Oh, Jesus. I mean, I, that's obviously such a kind of over... Like, that's that's obviously a huge topic. I guess, like, where are we going to start with that? Yeah, so there is honestly a lot to this topic, <laughs> and it was difficult to find really what to focus on, but I feel like it's important to start with just racist ideology. So yeah, I think it's important to start with understanding how racist ideology and colorism kind of started to infiltrate science as a field, both, you know, philosophically, then in medicine, science as a whole. I'll be focusing more on psychology and psychiatry, but a lot of these concepts infiltrated medicine as a whole. Um, and I, I like to kind of point out that you know, these fields were dominated by white men. So unfortunately, a lot of the perspectives and a lot of the theories that get pushed from the beginning of, you know, like scientific endeavors were very biased because of these points of views and still are in many ways. Yeah, when talking about the foundations of racism and medicine, it's important to point out that science and medical science specifically, was used to identify racial categories from the perspective of these wealthy white men who had access to education, who were the academics at the time. So there are pseudosciences like phrenology and pseudo like genetics and evolutionary biology that was used, that was employed to support white supremacy, to posit that there was a biological difference between people of different races, even though race is a socially constructed concept. Right. Yeah. So one thing that I want to point out is just a little bit of like a theoretical perspective that I'm understanding this information from is through critical race theories, whiteness theory. So you see that a lot of the sciences were created within the perspective of whiteness as default, whiteness as centric, and whiteness as kind of like an unspoken de facto, like normalcy. And so you really see that um, accommodations right from that perspective where everyone else is considered the other. And obviously a lot of these views 
started from, you know, recordings of colonization and enslavement. And uh, a lot of the material that I am referring to comes from two main books that I read. One was called Even the Rat Was White by Robert B. Guthrie, Dr. Guthrie. The other is Psychiatry and Racism by Dr. Medlock. And so one thing that I really liked about the uh, book by Dr. Guthrie is that he brings up the fact that all we know from history, which informed scientific endeavor, came from this very white, uh, male-centric point of view. And even to the point where these encounters between the Europeans and the Africans are always given from the perspective of the European colonizer. And I just love this little bit that I just wanted to share because I found it really interesting and kind of poignant. We get this view from the European as othering the African, but little is seen from the uh, perspective of the African. And Dr. Guthrie writes, um, the African, you, you glean some understanding of how they uh, viewed the European with a little bit of concern and pity uh, through this poem that I just wanted to share because I thought it was fun. This book says, evidence of this hospitality that the African showed the Europeans uh, can be seen in the following specimen of 18th century West African poetry. The winds were roaring and the white man fled. The rains of night descended on his head. The poor white man sat down beneath our tree, weary and faint, and from home was he. For him no mother fills with milk the bowl, no wife prepares the bread to cheer his soul. Pity the poor white man who saw our tree, no wife, no mother, no home has he. And so <laughs> I love that little poem, but it's really true that all of the information that we kind of legitimize and we gather are from this very male Eurocentric point of view. And as Savannah said, that means that it infiltrated our ideas of humanity, which also infiltrated with these really racist ideas that the races were almost different species. And so these different species that they formulated were the Homo Americanus, Homo Europaeus, Homo Asiatus, and Homo Afer. So they really tried to blend very racially biased sciences, quote unquote, into legitimate sciences of anthropology, medicine, um, and then later psychology and psychiatry. And we see an obsession with measuring physical and biological properties as it relates to race and trying to really create distinctions between the quote-unquote species of races to support the white superiority over the others. And so they even made like long charts where, you know, we have the species, racial species kind of base groups where it's like Caucasian, Mongolian, Malay, Ethiopian, and American. And those branch off into, you know, the different sub-races. Uh, so it really, unfortunately, became a large trend in science whereby biological research was directed towards these race sciences where they tried to measure, you know, different physical attributes as racially determined and as signs of inherent differences. A kind of painful thing is that we aren't really taught that a lot of the famous biologists, neurologists, psychiatrists, and psychologists that we kind of celebrate today had their run in the race sciences. <laughs> it's really gross. Um, for instance, Paul Broca, uh, someone that I had looked up before as someone who's interested in neuropsychology, also obviously the person who's named after Broca's area, 
not going to go into that because I'd go on a neurology tangent. Um, he was into studying hair texture measurements and classifications. Oh, dear. Yeah, not great. They had very racist ways of describing different hair, hair types and stuff. You know, theories about hair growth for African people that were very problematic, like believing that, you know, black Afro style hair grew in tufts rather than follicles. Jesus. Different physical features like lip thickness, skin color measurements. They would use things called tintometers, color tops, color blocks, and photometers to <laughs> measure skin color. So very gross obsessions with trying to show the inherent differences, physical differences uh, between races. These kind of things were really the base of a lot of the other research that came out in the future and kind of set the stage for a lot of the inherent beliefs that race is a real thing because they had the science to back it up. And a lot of these ideas that, you know, we're just naturally different people. Uh, it was completely discounting the effects of culture, society, treatment, and everything on the human condition. Well, and like, what was the, what was the benefit of that to the um, like white guys doing this? Well, it gave them a way to other people through the ivory institution of science. And I'll get into it later, but it set the stage for showing that the outside differences inferred internal differences. And we'll get into that when I go into more of the psychological abuses of, uh, you know, race science. But yeah, so I mean, it's like a justification, like it gives quote unquote credibility to colonialism, right? Yes, it yeah. does. It 100% dehumanizes the African to make them seem as less than human compared to the white. And it legitimizes the white's uh, colonization and power over the African. And we see that a lot, as we'll discuss in the narratives that came out in describing emotional, cognitive, and overall psychological, like just well-being and functioning of people who were not white. Yeah, and we see this play out in medicine as well. These ideas of white superiority and the different, the biological differences that these scientists were suggesting existed affected the way that medical research was done, how experiments were conducted on Black people throughout the 1700s to 1900s in really unethical ways. And they still cling to medical education and medical knowledge today. In 2016, a group of researchers looked at different genetics texts for, I think, middle schoolers. And they looked at texts that were published around the turn of the 21st century, so the late 90s to early 2000s. And they found that 90% of textbooks still linked genetics and race. Yep. It's super gross. Well, and so, uh, so for anybody who might not be familiar with the idea of like race not being a biological constant, like what what is the just like briefly explain that? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So, race is a it's a social concept. There there are no biological foundations in how we categorize race. If you look um, just at how race is categorized in the United States versus another country, you can see that 
identify social identifiers change a little bit. Racial categories will change. And so there's no biological foundation, even though scientists used pseudosciences like phrenology, they misunderstood evolutionary biology, like Alex was talking about, and created different almost species to categorize people of different races. There's no actual biological foundations for that. So even though people may look different and that's what people usually use to categorize folks into different racial groups, there's no biological foundation for that. There's no genetic basis. There's no evolutionary basis. People are physiologically almost the same across races. Gotcha. Right. They try to purport it such that, you know, like the races externally, if they look different, they are completely internally different too. But genetically, between people who look completely different, really, there's there's more similarities than there are difference differences genetically. And a lot of the stuff that make up those, you know, physical differences where we, we look at Know, skin tone or hair or whatever are are pretty superficial, honestly. When you look at uh, actual DNA, so yeah, so it's like taking it's taking a few external traits that are largely marginal in terms of importance to actual uh, right. Yeah, and then and then applying like making a whole category out of that. Right. Yeah, and they went went wild with this phrase <laughs> science, like trying to use it and make wild extensions in their hypotheses based on. You know, these pretty superficial things. And this created really dangerous assumptions in medicine, racist assumptions, like totally unfounded assumptions in medicine that led to excused violence against people of color, especially Black people, in medical research and in medical treatment. And I'll go through a few examples of the treatment of Black people in certain research and medical sort of events in the United States. I'm going to start with um, racism in medical education, um, beginning with grave robbings by medical schools, really starting in the 1700s when medical schools were founded. Uh, the resurrectionists. Yeah. So basically, if there, if a medical school existed before it was legal to get cadavers, and even after for a time, medical schools hired what they called resurrection men to rob graves and steal people's remains for medical experimentation and instructions. This obviously medical students need cadavers to do research, but no one consented to their remains being taken. No one consented to what was done on them. Not all the time were um, people's remains respected by the students and instructors of these medical schools. And because it was illegal, they were disposed of in awful ways that didn't allow any closure for families who had had their um, loved ones' remains stolen. There's no final resting place that like a family could visit like they planned on originally when they, when they buried their family members. I'm gonna look at Harvard Medical School specifically, even though Take any medical school from the 1700s and 1800s and even into the early 1900s, and these medical schools hired resurrection men to rob graves. But I want to use Harvard as an example because usually Americans look at the Ivy Leagues as like the pinnacle of academia, the highest um, level of education, and sort of like the purest, most 
progressive education that a person could get if they yes. went to Ivy League. I was so going to say you could you could kind of view it as like the pinnacle of U.S. education, but like not in a good way. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, definitely representative of white supremacy in education. Yeah, I was going to say it's so white coded. Harvard, oh, drag them, drag them hard. <laughs> But they probably they probably stole all bodies of uh, just you know all all uh, races and classes equally, right? Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> so- <laughs> Great. Also, can I just mention that Resurrection Men sounds like a goth band or something? I mean, that's a badass name. Yeah. Unfortunately, it is pretty metal, but not great. Yeah. So. No, medical schools did not, not that it's okay to steal anyone's remains, (laughs) but medical schools targeted black cemeteries specifically because they wanted to steal the bodies of people, um, one, that didn't have the money to bury their loved ones in materials that were hard to break into. So these are going to be people who like can't afford headstones, can't afford just more sturdy building material. So it was easy or to um, break into these burial sites to steal remains. Also, medical schools were run by rich white men who didn't care about black people's remains and didn't see them as human, as I'll talk about in another instance outside of Harvard. But it was obvious that local authorities didn't care if black people's remains were being stolen. So that's why these resurrection men would target black cemeteries. So looking at Harvard specifically, in 1999, they excavated the old medical school building and they found remains in a closed off well in the basement of the medical school. These remains were buried with clothes uh, that they think belonged to these people. Also with wine bottles or champagne bottles to be more specific and oyster shells. Oh, because geez. Yeah, because the medical students... Um, at Harvard specifically, could be part of the secret anatomy society that had more access to instruction in medicine from the professors at Harvard, and they would party it up in the medical school building. So not only were these people's remains being stolen, taken away from um, where their families can visit them without anyone's consent, but they were discarded in a really disrespectful manner. They were basically buried along with the trash of these rich white kids who were just like having fun partying in the same room that they were holding cadavers. Wow, that's like ultimate explicit desecration and another form of, you know, just, I don't know, like another layer of genocide, (laughs) to be honest. Well, yeah, yeah, like people get, you know, these these people were, like their ancestors were enslaved, and there's all kinds of, you know, rape, murder, and just horrific uh, slavery. And then later on, like you're fucking, like you, your body can't even rest without being fucked with. This is the white boy summer they've been talking about. No, <laughs> Jesus. Oh, I mean, God. honestly, that's that's all. Listen, this may be a hot take, but like white boy summer, that's gonna end up with this. All that is is just gonna be a lot of alcoholism and then some, a bunch of guys doing a hate crime, and that's gonna make national news. <laughs> um, but looking at one of Harvard's Re- Harvard's resurrection men specifically was Ephraim Littlefield. 
We don't know um, what race Ephraim was, though most resurrection men at other institutions were black because during when slavery was legal, um, many resurrection men were enslaved black men of the university. And after slavery was abolished, then um, some were still employed by the university to serve as resurrection men. But I wanted to use this example specifically because there's a little bit more context for sort of his position at the university. I really wanted to add, along with um, looking at Harvard for the way that they treated the remains of the Black people that they stole from these cemeteries, Ephraim was, at least Ephraim, but probably other resurrection men in the past, were forced to sleep in the same room that the well was that they were disposing bodies of. So not only were these resurrection men put in this really awful position of robbing graves for the university, but they had to sleep in the same room, at least at Harvard, in the same room that they were disposing of the bodies of. Oh, God. Jesus Christ. Yeah, so really awful. And by hiring resurrection men, this distanced the universities from the illegality of robbing graves. Oh, nice. Yeah. Like if your resurrection man was um, caught by the police, you could just say that they're they're not, they don't work for you. Wow. They put all the culpability on them. Was it illegal to buy a body or just to dig one up? So um, in Boston before 18, before the 1830s, it was illegal to acquire a cadaver. Mm. So that's one reason that like grave robbings were so high. In some places it was illegal. In others it wasn't though. Um, and even after what were called um, bone bills were passed and allowed universities to acquire bodies, the universities still used resurrection men to steal people's remains um, because you could only acquire bodies. And I'm not sure if you had to purchase them or they were donated, but you could only acquire bodies from people who were, um, who had died, who were unclaimed or people who were sentenced to death in prison. Oh, cool. Well, I wonder what those demographics are like. Exactly. Yikes. Yeah. So we can, sort of assume that these were disproportionately people of color, um, again, that were having their remains desecrated and were not donating their bodies for science or experimentation, but rather having them stolen in different ways. Interesting story about Ephraim Littlefield. He witnessed a Harvard professor killing a Boston socialite. And so he actually, yeah. So he was an eyewitness in that trial and ended up retiring with $3,000, which in the 1800s was a lot of money. Other resurrection men have not been so fortunate. There were stories that I read of resurrection men being disposed of in the same mass graves that they were disposing of used remains or being buried in unmarked graves. So there's no way their families could find them or being buried in really unsuitable graves that were later wiped away by some sort of environmental disaster. I was just going to ask, is it is there a clear connection or somewhat of a connection, at least for some of these men, that they were getting sick by laying with in proximity to that well, and that later on that's like kind of what caused their like an underlying illness or something? Like I'm just trying to think of logistically, it's probably these men are probably getting sick, 
and they're probably dying and then you get sick from literally laying with these bodies and then or in proximity to these bodies so i don't know this whole thing makes me really angry i'm trying to like i'm trying to verbalize this while also kind of taking it all in but yeah yeah it's really horrendous what these medical schools are doing i didn't read anything on that um i honestly don't know if the doctors of the time would have cared enough to note any of that but i i can't imagine that you're right being in that close proximity with decomposing bodies especially when preservation like tactics weren't very good at the time like you couldn't preserve remains very well i i can't imagine that they were decomposing in a way that was safe to be in the same room as them right and i mean basically anyone in the field that comes in contact with necrosed material can tell you that it smells disgusting and some people you know become ill just from the scent so i can only imagine the discomfort of that absolutely i i was fortunate enough to be a part of like a pre-medical program that we got to um use cadavers for instruction and even with like the preservation processes that we have now it's still an overwhelming and really unpleasant smell so i can't imagine that people weren't getting sick from being around decomposing bodies then where'd where'd, where'd they get them at your program i don't know what oh. <laughs> i think i hope and i like have good faith that my program used people's bodies who actually donated them hmm okay <laughs> I mean, I like, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. It's just that, like, you never, you can never tell these days with uh, universities. I mean, I guess that's the point of like bringing up medical schools is that like the awful shit that they did in some ways is still continuing. Sure. I'm, I'm sure that my college's program, because it's one that I think other colleges use, is okay. But hmm. but Harvard, after they excavated this building, instead of returning the remains to a resting place, um, trying to identify them, which which might have been impossible, but instead of like returning them to a respectable resting place, put them on display. <laughs> Jesus! Wow! Here, let's let, we, we might as well make some more money off it. Hey! Jesus Christ! That's just a whole nother layer. Fuck to Harvard, damn. It's both shocking but not shocking because liberal universities like that are like, we know what we've done. So in order to kind of show our past and stuff, we're going to showcase it in a museum and have all of our donors and founders who very well are probably connected to this history see it but also feel bad. Like, it's just all performative to me. That's why I'm thinking it is. It's just like liberals like, oh, we're showing you just because we feel bad, but we're not going to do anything about it. Absolutely. These Ivy League institutions, these like historic quote unquote institutions have a lot of shit like buried. There were two wells in the basement of Harvard. Only one was excavated, probably because they didn't want to find what was in the other one. Oh, God. Yeah. 
So, oh, and there was also documentation from the medical students at that time who were part of the secret anatomy society that not only were they partying it up in the dissection um, lab and throwing their trash away with these remains, they were also stealing pieces of the people's remains on midnight raids. You serious? They're doing, oh my God, I hate it. I can't, I... They're like spring break. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like why? I mean, not only like gross. I mean, I understand they don't understand germ theory. Like gross ethically, gross like because of that and like it's a decomposing body. But why? I don't want to know why, but why? Yeah, like, I don't know. Even if they don't understand germ theory, like it's a dead person, dog. Like... Come on. <laughs> Little respect? Yeah, absolutely. But no, they didn't because they didn't view the remains that they stole um, as like people's remains. Like black people were dehumanized. The remains that resurrection men stole were disproportionately black. So like if they're not going to respect these people in life, they're definitely not going to respect them in death. And that mm-hmm. goes, um, that segues well into the New York City grave robbing riots, um, which I want to talk about next. So in 1788, um, and New York City was founded in 1625, which blew my mind, but was also just like helpful for me to put things in context. But 1788, a group of black people in the area petitioned the common council, which is like the local government to stop the grave robbing. They knew it was common knowledge that medical schools were doing this medical schools and teaching and constructing hospitals were stealing people's remains so they um petitioned the local government because they knew it was the medical schools and the hospitals and they said like hey can you can you do something about this like our loved ones remains are being stolen and we didn't we're not okay with that and the local government said if the only ones procured for dissection are products of africa then surely no person can object uh well okay yikes (laughs) yeah so these local officials did not care that people's bodies were being stolen because um to them it was only black people's remains that were being stolen this changed later that year when a white woman's body was stolen from trinity churchyard um, by a new york city hospital And instead of the common council and the town turning a blind eye, they they just like got together and started rioting. They went into the hospitals and they took out the bodies that have already been dissected. So it was really impossible to identify them and burn them in the streets. They broke shit. They set shit on fire. Um, after going through some of the New York City hospitals, they moved on to Columbia University to raid that as well. The medical students and instructors at Columbia had heard that the riot was going to happen, so they actually hid the bodies beforehand, so they weren't able to find any bodies. Interestingly, Alexander Hamilton pops up in the story, so for all you Hamilton fans... (laughs) (laughs) I don't think Um, any Hamilton fans are listening to this. No, I don't think so either. Um, But Hamilton um, was supposedly at the steps of Columbia during this raid, trying to keep the rioters out. And someone like threw a brick at his head and then he like, oh, shit. (laughs) 
Yeah. Obviously, he wasn't too injured because he goes on to continue living. But then the rioters uh, stormed Columbia, broke some things, but but didn't find any bodies because the um, medical students had already hit them. Then the militia were called in because the government wanted to sort of squash the riots and 20 people were killed. I'm not sure how many of those were medical students and professors, how many of those were rioters and how many of those were militiamen, but I'm assuming it was more casualties on the side of the rioters, but- White on white violence, shaking my head. (laughs) But obviously like people, white people cared if their loved ones' remains were stolen, but they didn't care if the remains of black family members of like black community members and their families were stolen the same year the whole town turned a blind eye to the folks who were petitioning the common council white townspeople rioted because a white woman's body was stolen from a grave cool love that i this i'm sorry sorry i've got all these tangents these aren't even really related were we talking at all about the like like in the chat were we talking about the fucking how after that boulder shooting how all the news coverage was like five people were killed but most importantly a police officer was killed yep oh yeah that was that was that was i fucking hated that that was so so bad it's really how they you know get anyone to give a fucking shit white Mm. police officer down yeah I mean, that's, I mean, that's relevant because it shows how like, certain lives are valued over others and like certain deaths are valued. Like, this woman's yeah. remains were highly valued apparently to the town, but the remains of black people who were stolen that they knew, people knew this was happening. They didn't care. They didn't give a fuck. So the white people were like, all lives matter though. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. All cadavers matter. Cadavers matter. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> so, grave robbing was awful. Medical schools have a like horribly racist past. Just looking at grave robbing, this continues as like medical education still holds on to racist misconceptions in science and in medicine and continues to teach them. Um, But this was a really, I think, illustrative example that a lot of folks I feel like don't, don't know about that don't know that medical schools were hiring people to rob graves. So I wanted to talk about that. I also wanted to talk about the Flexner report. I don't know if any of you all are familiar with the Flexner report. No. Yeah, I'm glad you're going to bring it up because I was kind of not sure if that would be covered. Cool. Yeah, no, I definitely wanted to cover it. This was new to me. So um, in preparing for this episode, I read Medical Apartheid or parts of it. I have yet to actually read cover to cover of Medical Apartheid because it's 400 pages of awful, like awful (sighs) historically. It's written really well, obviously, and exceptionally dense. But it's really difficult to get through, especially as a sick person, like just reading about the atrocities in medicine that Mm. affect the way that medicine medicine still functions um, is just it's fucking awful and depressing. So I listened to podcasts in addition to reading medical apartheid and reading articles and the folks on these podcasts really brought things in that I haven't heard of before, including the Flexner Report. So I did some research on that. And the Flexner Report was written in 1910, and it was 
it was requested by the American Medical Society or the American Medical Association, sorry, and the Carnegie Foundation to standardize the teachings and medical schools, which is a good idea if done properly. And obviously this wasn't. <laughs> so <laughs> Abraham Flexner went to 155 medical schools in Canada and in the United States and based his findings on what should be standardized off of Johns Hopkins. So he went to black medical schools, women's medical schools, and these rich medical schools, as well as rural medical schools, which were also underfunded, and based his report off of what Johns Hopkins was doing. So he was like, fuck everything else. You're not actually creating good doctors. Only Johns Hopkins is. So you need to do... you." Like, even though your institution is under-resourced because it focuses on creating black doctors, creating women doctors, creating doctors in rural area, rural areas, we don't care. We just want you to follow Harvard, or not Harvard's, Johns Hopkins standards. This was obviously racially motivated because Flexner, many times through this research and through other research and speeches he's given, has um, suggested that... Black people can't be doctors, that they're not capable, and this is going off of assumptions that science has supported historically that Black people don't have the same mental capacity as white people. So this is again holding white supremacy. Yeah. So this is again upholding white supremacy. And he also suggested that if Black medical schools were to continue, that they should train black physicians not in surgery and hygiene only and the purpose of a black physician should be to protect the well-being of the white man cool yeah Thanks. so that's what he wrote in flexner. the flexner report super cool so as a result of the flexner report a lot of historically black medical schools um, rural medical schools and women's medical schools shut down and we can still see the impacts of the Flexner report, because that was sort of a catalyst for shutting down these medical schools, which just needed more resources. So instead of the American Medical Association, the Carnegie Foundation being like, oh, wow, we see that these medical schools are being underfunded, we should fund them. They're like, nah, shut them down. So that started the sort of catalyst to shutting down medical schools. And by 1923, so the Flexner report, again, was written in 1910. By 1923, five of the seven black medical schools were shut down. Today, only four historically black medical schools currently are in operation. Yeah, so we can see how the Flexner Report and the assumptions that it supported, the ideas of white supremacy that it supported, and that white people wanted to see, continue sort of in underfunding black medical schools. This is a, a major factor in the lack of black doctors that we have in medicine now, only 5% of physicians are black. And um, looking sort of at one university specifically, this year at the University of Wisconsin, the first black man will graduate as a resident from the, the University of Wisconsin. The first one in, in University of, University yeah, of so, Wisconsin? So, yeah. Um, Dr. Wow. Ditta is the first man, the first black man to graduate from the University of Wisconsin's residency program. 
How long has that, pre- that program been around? Actually, that's a great question. I don't know. I tried to find more information about the residency program on their website, and it was a little difficult. I probably don't want you to know. Yeah. I think, probably not. I mean, it's so important to bring this up to really highlight how the education system is set up to fail people who don't come from like middle-class white backgrounds and how that has resulted in palpable lack of physicians, lack of medical workers, like lack of healthcare provided to rural areas. Like just think of those schools that would have offered, you know, medical resources to those areas, which would, you know, ripple continually ripple to more students and stuff like that. And, and that just being stifled and, and how many students that really left without the proper uh, education that they, they wanted to, that they deserve to pursue, really. It's really uh, stark to realize that most of those schools that served, you know, Black students were closed. And yet, that's not really something that's talked about in, in you know, our understanding of the American uh, education system or history, really. So, yeah. And oh, we've yeah. even talked about this, you know, in our personal circles that there's a huge uh, need for more medical workers. And we see why that bottleneck exists because of this historic, you know, supremacy of white privileged people getting education. Just real quick, the, um, the first four-year class matriculated from the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health in 1925. Cool. Awesome. That's great. Love that for them. Yeah, I'm not sure when their, if their residency program founding date would be different than the medical college, but I'd imagine that it wouldn't be that far apart. And the fact that in 2021, the first black man is graduating from their residency program is just absolutely unacceptable. Mm. Oh, that's, yeah, that's, that's monstrous. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. I listened to an interview with Dr. Callista Stitta. And he was talking about his experience at the University of Wisconsin and in Madison. I didn't know this, but apparently Madison is one of the most segregated cities in the United States. Mm -hmm. And he talks about, um, he just talks about the racism that he's felt at the medical school and um, in Madison in general. Like one time he was driving to work and got pulled over because he had a parking pass on like hanging from his rear view mirror, which is apparently not okay. Okay, cool. Yep. I think this is an important illustration of another way in which people from poor minority backgrounds have, you know, more difficult access to medical training and just higher education in general. Like there's definitely de facto segregation with a lot of universities and programs like there are only specific programs that I personally would feel comfortable applying to because of that racial hostility or the predominance of white uh, individuals in that area. And I don't think that that's really something that crosses the minds of people when they think of education. Like I've talked to my partner, like, I'm sorry, like, yeah, there's programs in fucking like Mississippi and Tennessee that do offer like PhDs for psychology, but I'm not going to go there. I wouldn't feel comfortable like looking at the faculty, looking at the like demographics of the student body, like I wouldn't feel welcomed. And so that 
in itself cuts down the access to those programs and for other ethnic minorities for pursuing these degrees. And that contributes to the bottleneck as well. In my program, I'm the only one specific, specifically focused in Latin American history, but the only one who has any heritage in uh, Latin America. And it's like, unnerving going to a class because it's all white people it's not even i'm by myself and my professor's there so that's why we're really close but like that kind of it's just kind of terrifying like just and even not even just that but like validating like latin american history and saying like how it's kind of important like especially when you're talking about american history because a lot of them are into that i don't know i've just been frustrated about it because it's just if I if I didn't have family here, I would go somewhere else for school. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That is completely understandable. And in my clinical psychology cohort, I'm the only minority. And so I think that says a lot about the schools, academia, and higher education still, for sure. Yeah, racism in education functions in so many different ways that aren't necessarily discussed when when those topics come about. That it's it's literally in every facet. So like for this, for the doctor who just graduated or is graduating this year from the UW residency program, talking about how he's, he runs into police all the time. Like he's always pulled over for bullshit. Um, and he experiences racism in the workplace. Like that, that is all a barrier to him being a doctor because that's all like super stressful. And I, I don't think he didn't go to medical school at the University of Wisconsin, but he did go to the medical school in the United States. So definitely racism in every facet of education sets up a barrier. So I'm going to move on to racism in medical research. And I'm going to be talking about two sort of big events or illustrative events in medical research in the United States. I'm going to be talking about the research that Dr. Marion Sims did, and I'm going to talk about Tuskegee, the Tuskegee research as well. I'm going to start by talking about Dr. Marion Sims, who was a gynecologist, and he was born in South Carolina, but he practiced throughout the South. He wrote an autobiography that stated he was a mediocre medical student, and when he became a physician, didn't really even understand what he was prescribing his patients, so we know this is going to go really well. So Marion Sims is known as the father of American gynecology because of his experiment, his torturous experiments that he conducted on enslaved black women. Marion Sims saw an opportunity to cure vesicovaginal fistulas, which are basically, it's a hole um, in between the bladder and the vagina, which causes incontinence and also causes your vagina to fill with urine. So that leaves opportunity for infection and is really unpleasant and obviously makes someone incontinent. So it's impossible for you to live out your life as you would before. Women usually developed vesicovaginal fistulas after a difficult childbirth, which was common in Black enslaved women because they were often um, not fed well. They didn't have access to, though they had access to midwives, they didn't have access to other medicines at the time and like doctors that actually gave a fuck about them. So that could lead to some trauma during birth. A lot of women 
A lot of white women, wealthy white women specifically, also had issues with vesicovaginal fistulas because for some reason, doctors thought using forceps during birth was a good idea and that would often cause tearing and cause this condition. For a wealthy white woman, that led her to be sort of kept in the home for the rest of her life and kind of on bed rest um, because she would be completely incontinent. However, for black enslaved women, this means that they still have to work. They just have to work in less sanitary conditions and painful conditions. He would go to different plantations and experiment on enslaved black women without anesthesia, even though at the time there were some methods for anesthesia. And anytime Marion Sims did any type of surgery on a white woman, he would use anesthesia. Of course. Uh. Yeah. So um, anesthesia existed, but he didn't use it. He, in his writings, and while he was um, sort of validating his procedures, would say that Black women didn't feel as much pain. And this is an assumption that um, is one of those assumptions that science and medicine early on was promoting as a difference between white people and black people, that black people just didn't feel as much pain. That's obviously very untrue. And even Sims knew that. Sims would perform these really um, torturous surgeries on women without anesthetic. And he would have other doctors holding the women down during the surgery, or he would have, he would force other enslaved women to hold the patient, or I wouldn't even say patient, but the person that he was really just torturing down. Marion Sims also just didn't know what the fuck he was doing. He got lucky eventually by using silver instruments, um, silver surgical instruments while working on tying up or sewing up um, a woman's fistula. And silver kills certain bacteria. It's not perfect, but it is an antiseptic in, in its own way. So it didn't it didn't really kill any infection that was already there, but it didn't introduce a new one, which allowed um, this woman's body to heal. Actually, like the, the fistula actually um, kept the sutures and ended up healing. So from this experiment, Sims went on and traveled around the country saying that he had cured vesicovaginal fistulas and he was just upheld as this amazing surgeon, even though he he never knew what he was doing. He was always fumbling around and he was he was not treating patients, but rather he was doing horrendous painful experiments that he didn't even know if they would work on women that he saw as as other. So even though he was conducting these awful, horrendous, and torturous experiments, until recently, he was upheld as the father of modern, or not modern, but American gynecology. That has so many layers to it. Mm-hmm. I can't unpack it. Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's mm. awful. It's absolutely horrendous. And after... Sims found this cure for vesicovaginal fistulas. He said that he treated every one of the women that he was previously experimenting on, the ones that were still living. But his colleague, one of his colleagues, um, Nathan Bozeman, said that he didn't 
that he didn't even treat half of the women that he experimented on previously with this new surgical procedure. It's like one of those things where I'm not shocked he didn't, you know, go back. It's just all of it's trash. Like all of it's unnecessary. Like it is a necessary procedure to help people who've gone through that kind of pain, especially during childbirth. It's unnecessary in the sense of how he went about doing it, um, especially to the horrendous effect of causing these women not just trauma to their bodies, but I can't even imagine the mental trauma as well. But yeah, just what Alex is saying, there's so much to unpack here. I don't even... It's wild. I always, when I hear this kind of shit, I literally always think like, so that was another way in which people with psychopathic tendencies could enact, you know, sadistic, what would you even say? Sadistic acts towards victims, you know, in a socially sanctioned way. It literally sounds like that to me. Yeah. When I was reading, so this, um, event is or story is really um well documented in medical apartheid and while i was reading through it that's what i was thinking that sims was he gained social capital and financial capital because he ended up doing the, these surgeries on wealthy women throughout the united states because he didn't care about the people that he experimented on because he was able to be violent and have no repercussions. He, in some cases, created fistulas in women that he experimented on. Yeah, that's it's really dark to to think about kind of the the socially sanctioned ways that people have perpetuated sadistic acts and they just find people that are oppressed or that society take advantage of and they go through that you know route towards living these sick urges and fantasies and shit like that and they aren't put in check so i mean we see that with you know even some recent cases of doctors who uh you know like dr death who was a a serial murderer we hear about that through you know the police force when serial killers were on the police force you know there's just like disgusting ways that they they find releases for their sadistic fantasies i really i don't like it it's disgusting yeah it is definitely exceptionally horrendous and socially socially sanctioned like you said i hate to get darker but i do want to talk about sims and his sort of entirety because it's relevant to the conversation um but in order to keep performing on um, these people. He kept them addicted to morphine because the surgeries were so painful, but morphine actually only helps during the surgery. So even his colleagues were like, why do you keep giving people morphine after the surgery? And it was so people would come back so he could continue his experimentation because he would only give the people he was experimenting on morphine after the surgeries. Fucking um, hell. Yeah. He was Yeah, a, that's dark. It's like yeah, this is super villain shit. God. Yeah, absolutely. And again, until recently he was still revered as the father of American gynecology, and there was even a statue resurrected somewhere in the United States in his honor. He also did experimentation on black infants. There was a another 
racist medical assumption that was promoted by scientific research and medical pseudo scientific research and pseudo medical research that supported that black people's skulls fused too early in development, not allowing their brains to fully develop, which caused them to be less intelligent. That's what these um, scientists said. And so Sims working on this assumption when he would work with children who had what they called at the time was tetany, but really it was a vitamin D deficiency that, that um, created seizures. And he would open up the baby's skulls with cobbler's tools to let the brain expand. And when the infants died as a result of this procedure, he blamed the mothers or the midwives for being lazy. Fucking God. Whoa. Whoa. That's not how the brain works. What the hell? Oh my god, I had not heard of that one. Jesus Christ. When when was this? That is a great question. Because this this sounds like medieval quote unquote medicine. Yeah, I mean it's absolutely not. I think it was the eighteen hundreds. Um let me Ugh. let me look that up. Jesus. Late eighteen hundreds. Jeez. Okay. Um so you can see how these dangerous assumptions in medicine, these racist beliefs that medicine and science had created and supported led to direct and awful violence on black people's well-being. It took their life. It took their health. If these people and infants that he experimented on didn't die, they definitely had a lower quality of life for the rest of their lives. I hate it. That's awful. Mm. But it really does, you know, illustrate how much that ideology integrated into the socially acceptable field of you know, both medical research and race science. Yeah. Yeah. And we can see the violence that is done onto people when we don't understand medicine, when we support scientific research and medical research that has an obvious racist confirmation bias. And though we don't, I don't think very many people think of medicine as being violent now or being violent in the same way that Sims was. When we um, think about how doctors, if doctors don't understand health disparities, racial health disparities, and they equate increased risk for hypertension as um, something that is biologically determined or natural, then we erase the fact that factors such as stress due to racism, policing, poor housing, um, lack of access to nutritional food, and poverty are really the things that are creating these healthcare disparities. Yeah, and I mean, I I know that I know that specifically right now we're talking about um, like these these racial disparities and this sort of white supremacist backing or, or the white supremacy underlying the whole thing. But like I, this I, this is such a it's such a it's endemic to just all kinds of people in like who are being treated in the healthcare system who aren't kind of fit like white fit white people it's usually fit white like men yeah and so it, it, it's just in it's it's yeah unsurprising that it um started that a lot of this stuff starts with the specific like horrific racist uh eugenics and all of that but then it yeah this the thing is that this stuff always trickles down to everybody else as well without understanding this this historical 
background and the explicit ways that people were mistreated through the medical system. People don't understand the rightful distrust of some communities towards, you know, medicine and research and stuff like that. And really how that is an additional barrier towards accessing care because they have, you know, stories from their grandparents, their great grandparents, etc. And it like you can't really blame them for for not really trusting, you know, the medical institutions. Yeah. I mean, Tuskegee was it was recent. It stopped in 1972, which I will be talking about Tuskegee in a second. But yeah, there are still horrendous things that have been done recently in medicine or um, that do trickle down and affect the way that people are treated, especially marginalized folks are treated in medicine. Speaking since Marion Sims was a gynecologist loosely, and I did some research in gynecology. Can't, so the research that I did was on lichen sclerosis of the vulva, which is an extremely painful condition. And it's considered uncommon to rare, but we really don't know. And it's considered more prevalent in white people. And I can't definitively say that there is a reason for that other than what I saw was potentially, I'd have to do more research, but I'm not like in medicine anymore or going into medicine. So that's not super accessible to me, but I would like to see research done on if anyone with VLS who was black was actually in these like research studies that they were doing, because one way that you, one major way that a doctor will um, diagnose VLS or like in sclerosis of the vulva is by looking for this like translucent kind of shiny appearance to the skin. All of the photos that I saw that were examples of this phenomenon were of were of light-skinned vulvas. Any of the research that I looked at was done in Europe, the United States, and then there was some research done in India. But of course, when I was doing research, my PI, my primary investigator, principal investigator, wanted me to look at U.S. and American journals more because those were more trustworthy. <laughs> oh, for sure. Nice. I love that. Yeah. So we can see this today. Um, and like I wrote my undergraduate thesis on how sexual assault was overlooked um, in VLS diagnosis, but I didn't look at race as much because there really was there really wasn't information because I don't believe that people of color were actually in in any of the studies that were done in the United States or Europe. So when all of these studies are saying, well, this is more prevalent in white people, it's like, is it? Or are you just focusing on white people? So we can still see how racism and, com and racist confirmation bias guides research in, in medicine today. I think it's uh, telling that the you know experiment you're about to cover, Tuskegee, is literally the study that people have to learn about when training for ethical uh, research, because that's how bad it is. <laughs> and I think it's also telling that it was obviously directed towards black men. And I would just love to, to mention that someday we'll have to, you know, look at how the medical and psychiatric fields have uh, oppressed LGBTQ communities too. 
Um, I oh, really tried God, to focus yeah. on race, but that is such a huge topic, especially in psychology. The problem, yeah, I mean, again, it's just like you could basically do a whole episode just on any particular um, marginalized group and their experience with uh, medicine and science in general. And, and uh, then there's, I think there's a lot of overlap in, in many cases, but there's also a lot of all, uh, novel ways of fucking with people depending on their, uh, de depending on, yeah, the specific ways that you don't match the pre-existing notion of the ideal patient. Yeah, I'd like to have more episodes continuing on how medicine and psychiatry have mistreated LGBTQ folks. And also, I would like to look at like, for profit medicine, like the for profit mm. nature of medicine and how deeply that changes everything. I mean, even even looking at racism in medicine, like medicine, early medicine was used to validate either ethically or just by upholding white supremacy was used to validate slavery. And that's because there was a lot of capital tied up in validating slavery. If, if you're trying to keep the wealth in the hands of white people, then what you're going to need to do is, is validate slavery. So I think that that is relevant in this conversation, but I also would like to focus on just capitalism and medicine and the for-profit nature of medicine, even those nonprofit hospitals and nonprofits or like nonprofit organizations. So yeah, moving on to the Tuskegee syphilis study, I'm glad that people who are studying medical research or doing any clinical work usually study Tuskegee as um, part of like an ethics course. I wasn't sure if I wanted to talk about Tuskegee because I learned about Tuskegee in high school and I studied it multiple times in college. And so I figured people probably have some sort of exposure to what it was. But then I was talking to someone about this episode and they were like, I've literally never heard about that. So I decided to talk about it. So in 1932, the U.S. Public Health Service um, started a study to observe the progress of syphilis in untreated black men. The study was done in Macon County, Alabama, and it was done on 399 men. The goal of the study from the perspective of the Public Health Service or the PHS scientists was to validate. They were already looking for validation. They wanted to validate that syphilis in Black people affected the cardiovascular system more than it affects the neurological system in the brain because they expected that to be a heavier symptom in white people because white people had, from their perspective, more developed brains and thus syphilis would target their brains versus black people from their perspective did not have well-developed brains and so syphilis would attack their cardiovascular system. So already starting out really well here. Yeah, I mean, when your premises are that uh, solid, this, what comes after has to be has to be just great science. Yeah, exactly. So they were already looking um, to confirm the racist ideas that they held. And again, these these were ideas that came from science and medicine research that was done to create racial categories and to uphold white supremacy. So we, we see it leach in again, this like foundational knowledge that was coming from science and medicine that white people are superior and 
thus black people are inferior in these ways and we're gonna do the study, which was exceptionally unethical um, to validate those claims. Some PHS physicians did not believe that syphilis should be treated in black people, even though there were there was treatments when the study started. They weren't great or super effective. They were different types of arsenic given in low doses. Oh, God. Yeah. So not great, but the, this was what they were treating white folks with. So they had a treatment for syphilis. It wasn't effective, but they had one. But the PHS scientists didn't believe that it was worthwhile to treat black people for syphilis because they believe that their, according to them, their more simple brain could not handle a complex society. So they would always be at odds. We shouldn't even treat them. It's not worth it. Jesus Christ. PHS doctors also blamed syphilis on the lack of morality and promoted the idea that black people were hypersexual. They didn't have any morals. They were getting syphilis because they were having way too much sex, which like regardless of the amount of sex a person is having, like that shouldn't have been a conversation that they were having, but they were just pushing this narrative again that was founded in, in pseudoscience that black people were hypersexual, um, not moral, and not as human as white people. Though it's interesting in that they did studies later that at the time in Macon County, 61% of the syphilis cases were congenital. So you can get syphilis through intercourse, but you can also get syphilis if a mother has syphilis and gives birth to a baby, there can be some infection there as well. So most of the cases in Macon County were actually congenital syphilis. So in order to um, gain participants for the study, the PHS announced that they were giving out free health assessments. Instead of doing that, what they were really looking for were black men with syphilis um, that they could identify and then use later in their study because they already knew from the beginning that they weren't going to treat these men for um, syphilis. They wanted the disease to run its course. They wanted to see the effects of disease progression without treating them at all. The study started in 1932. And by 1940, there was a cure for, there was a known cure for syphilis, which was penicillin. And even the Surgeon General at the time saw it as his personal goal to ensure that Clinics across the United States were giving out penicillin as a treatment to syphilis. But when asked about the Tuskegee study, he said that because we now have a cure, we can't cure these people because this opportunity won't show up again. That logic makes sense. Uh, not. Okay. <laughs> the idea is that like, oh, well, we're not going to be able to see how the disease progresses anymore. Yeah. This is our last chance to see how the disease progresses in untreated Black people, so we should just take advantage what? of this. Civil yeah. has been around like forever. What? Oh mm -hmm. my god! It's just completely unethical, dirty science. Absolutely, Civil has been around for centuries, and like we've never been previous to you know 1940. We're not able to cure it, so we definitely knew what syphilis progression looked like, even if it hadn't been studied in such a chronological way. But they mm. weren't. Ab they absolutely did not see. Um, any of the black men in the study as worthy of a cure or worthy of treatment even. So they wanted to continue it because they didn't care. 
Fucking so, Christ. Yeah, so by 1955, one-third of the deceased participants died directly from syphilis. And they knew this because they would track down the bodies of these folks after they died, and they would perform an autopsy. And I really sincerely doubt that the family was notified. They also, as I said, withheld treatment from these men. They didn't let these men know that they were um, diagnosed with syphilis. They did convince them that they were being treated or what they called bad blood. Oh, you know, that condition that we all know, we all know about. Which at the time was like a term that was used for like any type of anemia or malnutrition. But I can't, I can't help but think that that was like a racially yeah. identified thing. Yeah, like bad blood. So that's what they were diagnosed with. And they were given, they were given vitamin D in some cases. They were given ineffectual amounts of arsenic but not the types that they were using as treatment at the time before penicillin or they were given mercury salve so they were given oh pleasant vitamin yeah vitamin d ineffectual doses of arsenic and not the right type that they were treating people with syphilis at the time before penicillin or they were giving folks mercury salve and they gave this to people that like they identified definitely had syphilis so they did have to keep some control subjects, of course, because this was really great science and they decided they needed that. So they didn't give the mercury salve to their control population. They gave the mercury salve to the black men that they identified that had syphilis. And this was a treatment at the time, but I I still don't believe that like it was probably like the right dosage. I mean, mercury is going to hurt you anyway, like it's bad, but... I feel like they probably didn't even care what they were giving to these people. And some of them reported like their hair falling out and teeth falling out. But also, so in 1955, a third of the deceased participants died directly from syphilis. 40 of the men's wives had been affected and 19 children were born with congenital syphilis. So not only were these men not receiving treatment and not being told of their condition, but this put other people in danger. And the researchers knew this. The researchers knew that because it was sexually transmitted, that the men's partners were going to most likely develop syphilis, as well as any children that they may have from a mother who was infected with syphilis. So by 1965, there were like some fringe groups, some activists, and some individuals that were raising concerns about the syphilis study. But there wasn't anything really that was publicly known about the study. It was mainly people who had access to medical research who worked in the public health service in some way who knew about the study. And after a while, seven years, there was an article that was written about the Tuskegee syphilis study. And this article was written by a reporter who got some information from someone who used to work at PHS and was upset that they weren't doing anything about the study because by this time, the study was still continuing. They were still tracking these men's lives. They were still not giving them treatment. And because penicillin was so available at the time, what they were actually doing was trying to keep them from going to a different clinic because that would have affected their results. Kind of that. So yeah, so they didn't want to affect the results. So they tried to keep um, these men from going to other clinics for treatment. So that also brings in the question of like, did if they got sick with something else, like if they had a cold or something or 
Another issue that they wanted looked at, were these doctors even treating them for that? I don't know, but I don't believe that the answer would be yes. So after um, this article was written, there was so there was pretty large public outrage and the Assistant Secretary for Health and Science Affairs or Scientific Affairs announced that there would be an investigation. And this investigation was done by like a panel of experts in ethics and medicine. And the panel did have nine people, four of the panel members, five, five of the panel members were black, four of the panel members were white. And they ended up deciding that the study was not ethical. It shouldn't continue. So they ended up shutting the study down. They gave healthcare and monetary compensation to the affected families. And they decided that there wasn't, there weren't enough protections in policies that protected like the human rights and health of research, of folks doing research, of folks like being research, research subjects. There were issues with this panel and Harriet Washington goes deeper into those issues and medical apartheid. I didn't have the opportunity to read through um, a lot of that, but that the issues didn't stop there, but they did end up making a big impact in the policies that protected people's rights and people's health as they were um, in research studies. Well, uh, pleasant. Damn. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't really know. I don't know much to say. Uh, death to America, as always. Absolutely, death to America. Tuskegee ended in 1972, and some folks may think like, why does it matter? Because like that that ended in 1972, though it was recent. It was quite a few decades ago. So like, really, does this affect? medicine now and you can still you can still see the effects of racial bias in medicine today as we've been talking through the podcast so far there was a study done from 2013 to 2014 on members of the American College of Surgeons and the survey asked them about racial health disparities and if racial health disparities existed only 36% of surgeons thought that racial health disparities existed 11% believed that they existed in the hospital that they worked in, and only 5% believed that they existed in their own personal practice. Yeah. About that. Um... I am honestly flabbergasted with how little acknowledgement there is to that issue, and I think it clearly shows. <laughs> There's a lot of research. There are a lot of conversations on racial health disparities, on the impacts of racism on a person's health, on the impacts of the environment and poverty on a person's health. And yet there are these surgeons who stay isolated, um, who either have not tried to educate themselves or have gone through these education programs without learning anything. The amount of re-education that medical professionals need is astonishing. Like I said earlier, 90% of genetics textbooks by the turn of the 21st century supported the idea that race has a genetic foundation. When we aren't teaching people an accurate account of genetics, an accurate account of race, um, that race is and only is socially constructed, 
We are creating people that have to be re-educated at some point in order to be good physicians. If you can't learn genetics improperly and then continue your education and then like understand genetics later, unless it has been like redefined for you. And there are so few teachers and instructors in the sciences who are taking this on to redefine race in only social terms and to acknowledge that students have been given false information. I mean, we look at genetics in general, not even genetics as it ties to race, but genetics. And for many students, because it was taught improperly, like Mendelian genetics are not accurate. We have created people like scientists and medical professionals who still have a basis in genetics in Mendelian genetics and really inaccurate genetics. And so what that creates are doctors and scientists and like medical scientists who, when they can't explain something, explain it through genetics. And then when you have race identified as something that's genetically founded, then it's really easy to tie that back into race and say that this is a natural occurrence instead of this is a product of poverty. This is a product of racism. This is a product of your body being flooded with cortisol constantly. And so if we don't have an accurate account of, of science, of medicine, and we keep creating physicians that don't understand, that misdiagnose patients, misunderstand patients, that are racist to their patients. So not only are patients facing racism and other aspects of their life, but when they're in the clinic with the doctor trying to find treatment, then they get more microaggressions and more misunderstanding of their body or just completely being ignored. And I've advertised this sort of episode to friends of mine who are in medicine um, or like going into medicine. And I really hope that they listen to it because Harriet Washington includes in her book that she argues that there should be more representation of people of color in medicine. And absolutely, there definitely should. There should also be a re-education of medical students and of physicians. Because if you, you have more representation of people of color in medicine, then that are teaching and practicing pseudoscience, and you're still going to treat patients like you don't understand what's going on in their body and you're still going to misdiagnose them. You're going to kill people. Like we don't see, we don't talk about how misdiagnosing patients and ignoring patients and gaslighting patients is killing them, but it is. And it's not just like people are dying. Like people are dying for a reason and people are dying because their bodies aren't understood by medicine and continue to be misunderstood by medicine. Right. And I feel like there's a huge lack of understanding how the materials and the resources within this training all written from that perspective, you know, of the, of the white male. And so that being taught, even if, you know, students of color are in the program and try to bring up the fact that maybe they see it as problematic, what will they be able to do to help impart that on the other students who just take in that point of view without considering that it might be problematic or or uh, faulty from its just foundational arguments, right? And so even in a lot of the the academic literature that I've had to read for my program, I've already noticed a lot of like whiteness coming from it. 
implicit whiteness and privilege coming from the perspectives and just like the theories and and the frameworks of the clinical work. And so that's a huge issue and it takes a lot of dismantling of of that superiority. And I think that's ultimately really supporting what what you're uh, asserting here, Savannah, that it's the education itself, you know, not even just the access, but but the actual material. Yeah, it would be so difficult to dismantle white supremacy as it exists in medicine and as it exists in science, but it absolutely has to happen in order to get the health outcomes that we should be getting in 2021, that we should be getting with the resources that we have available now. I did want to add a couple more statistics. So in 2016, one half of white medical students who are surveyed um, believe that Black people have a higher pain tolerance than white people. So I I didn't bring up that um, statistic earlier, but I wanted to add that because that's another illustrative example of how white supremacy still functions in medicine and how these racist assumptions that science and medicine created still exist. Um, That's why the history is so important to continue learning because it's not gone. And when we think about the current pandemic that we're in, when we think about how folks with comorbidities are more susceptible to COVID, have higher um, mortality rates, how people of color have higher mortality rates of COVID, it's still relevant to learn about how racism interacts with medicine and is produced through medicine and affects the way that people are treated. I was listening to a critical race theorist and a few doctors talking about the pandemic in this podcast that I'll I'll include the link to. The critical race theorist brought up an interesting point that if people of color have a higher chance of having comorbidities that will decrease their chance of surviving COVID. If they're in the hospital and they need a ventilator and someone who's healthy in any other respect, you know, other than being infected with COVID, someone who's healthy also needs a ventilator, that healthier person is going to have a higher chance of living and that's who the ventilator is going to go to. So it really just race is so relevant and racism is so relevant in every aspect of medical education and treatment and the way that we think about medicine still to this day. For sure, 100%. So Alex, what are you going to, how are you, how are you going to top that? No, like what, uh, what, what's your, um, <laughs> what angle are you taking to this topic? I mostly focused on psychology and psychiatry for obvious reasons, obvious reasons. <laughs> thank you for topic. thank you for uh, translating there. <laughs> You're welcome. It's a topic near and dear to my heart. And you know, like, gosh, I do kind of wish that we were in person because I feel like it would have been easier to f- flow this all together. But soon, 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 yeah, soon. So I'm gonna I'm gonna have to go back a little bit in time. And you know, we covered a lot of the the main kind of assertions around you know race science and stuff like that, where. As you know, Savannah's research looked more at the medical field and its research kind of more broadly. Uh, we're going to go back and look at how these race sciences really focused within psychology and psychiatry. So going way back, kind of towards the, the, the start of this episode where we were talking about how they were starting to distinguish 
the races as, as different species. Um, a field called ethnical psychology was born. Uh, I don't like where this is going. Yeah, it's not great. It's not fun stuff. <laughs> if if I had, you know, if I could drink a bunch of caffeine and just barrel through it, I would, but it probably wouldn't make sense. Uh, so, yeah, <laughs> ethnical psychology kind of started to develop after psychologists saw that anthropologists were doing a bunch of race science, and they're like, cool, let's do that too. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But instead of just looking at physicality and cultural race sciences, it looked at the application towards proving inherent biological differences based on personality, cognitive functioning, temperament, behavioral patterns, perception, and overall psychological processes. Um, and obviously, these were used to justify the poor treatment of ethnic minorities, specifically slaves at the time, because this was during the slave era of America, and honestly, to validate those feelings of white superiority. So we see that, you know, this historical validation of racism through psychology would affect what research was conducted and what was found. And obviously, they would be interpreted through the trends, the racist trends of that day. So for instance, there are a lot of psychologists in our history that we celebrate, but we don't know we're uh, within this trend of ethnical psychology, one being Dr. Robert S. Woodworth, who would later, later be the president of the American Psychological Association. And for those of you who don't know, um, that's a big association that's really important <laughs> for psychologists. Like, I'm a member of it. I'm part of some division. So it's not they great. Published, they published the DSM, right? No, that's actually American uh, Psychiatric Association, but the APA uh, exists. Well, that's an APA to me, so... Uh... <laughs> yeah, I mean, they definitely work <laughs> together. And the APA sets all the standards for clinical education in the USA for psychology. So let's just put it like that. You ain't going to school unless it's APA accredited. Uh, just to highlight how awful this shithead was, Dr. Woodworth to kind of celebrate and implicitly kind of more explicitly support ethnical psychology was quoted saying one of the most agreeable and satisfying experiences afforded by intellectual pursuits comes from the discovery of a clean-cut distinction between things that are superficially much alike the aesthetic value of such distinctions may even outweigh their intellectual value and lead to sharp lines and antithesis where the only difference that exists is one of degree. A oh favorite opportunity for this form of intellectual exercise and indulgence is afforded by the observation of groups of men. So you could clearly see where this was going. This led to a lot of bad gathering of psychological data and very unethical psychological research, as Savannah has covered, conducted on slaves. The psychological research and the actual academic literature made fun of the rightfully fearful responses of slaves. For instance, one piece of shit uh, author was very explicitly racist and conducted uh, psychological, psychological experiments on uh, slaves. And in one of his research articles where he was you know, talking about the data that he found, uh, he wrote, it was a never to be forgotten experience. The humor and zest whereof more than compensated for the many weary and discouraging hours which it cost to witness 
a subject fleeing over the hill in fright. So he wrote that in his motherfucking, like, high ivory tower clinical literature, just making fun of the black slaves that were like, what the fuck, once they realized what kind of research they were conducting. Ugh. Sounds like yeah. another Sims type guy. Yeah, he was. And there's some dirty ass shit also that he wrote about. And in his academic literature, he called them darkies. So very professional. Oh boy. All right. Yeah. So we find that this uh, psychological research was basically used to bolster racism and slavery. Uh, we're going to get into some real not great language. So I apologize, everyone. The language of that time was obviously very prejudiced and unsavory. So Dr. Benjamin Rush uh, defined what he called, quote unquote, negritude, which was a mild form of leprosy that could be cured only by becoming white. What now? (laughs) What? Yeah. So this really shows a conflation between blackness and illness, which we'll see not only is conflated with like physical illness, but mental illness. You know, despite the observation that black people who became enslaved seem to be mentally unwell because of slavery, uh, a lot of people used the terminology that Dr. Rush came up with to justify slavery and the inhumane inhumane treatment uh, of the black individuals who were enslaved. In 1840, U.S. Census claimed that enslaved blacks were free of mental illness. The black man becomes a prey to mental disturbances when he is set free. So this further justified like the idea that they were they were basically unable to care for themselves so slavery was the best course of action for them. They also stated that they were able to quantify the amount of insanity quote unquote that black people experienced and that it increased exponentially the closer they got to the north. So they really oh, huh. tried Yeah. <laughs> They really tried to show that freedom was a source of insanity for black slaves. One doctor, Samuel Cartwright, created disorders merely surrounding slavery uh, and freedom. So one mental disorder he coined was called drapetomania. And its symptoms included, which were only seen in black slaves, the uncontrollable urge to escape, disobedience, talking back and refusing to work. Uh, <laughs> wow, these 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 they're they're crazy. They just they don't they want to get out here for some reason. It's I yeah, don't understand wild. it. It's a mental disorder. They yeah, I don't absolutely. know why they won't just chill out. Uh, <sighs> more egregiously, Dr. Cartwright prescribed whipping as therapy for this mental disorder. Mm, okay. That of course Jesus. he did. <laughs> yeah, sure, that checks out. Also, <gasps> he's from Louisiana, so when I, when I was reading this, I like totally imagine him like they're suffering from <laughs> drapetomania <laughs> like god damn it like how is it so bad that it seems like a caricature but it's real so dr cartwright came up with another mental disorder afflicting only free black americans who were once slaves called dysthesia ethiopica or okay. in modern terms rascality hmm hmm mm-hmm. Okay, so rascality, let me read this description. It basically involved what he would consider the mental disorder that would come of a slave that was free and left to their own devices. He described it as stupidness of mind and insensibility of the nerves induced by the disease. Thus, they break, waste, and destroy everything they handle, abuse horses and cattle, tear, burn, or rend their own clothing, 
and paying no attention to the rights of property, they steal. They wander about at night and keeping in a half-nodding sleep during the day. They slight their work, cut up corn, cane, cotton, or tobacco when hoeing it, as if for pure mischief. So here we see that they are trying to justify the continuance of slavery through these mental disorders uh, that were pure horseshit. But since it was connected to the institution of medical science and psychiatry, it was accepted and purported as truth. And for that mental disorder of rascality, little rascal, basically, was <laughs> it was fucking ridiculous. They were easily curable if his instructions were followed. The skin is dry, thick, and harsh to the touch, and the liver inactive. The liver, skin, and kidneys should be stimulated to activity and be made assist in decarbonizing the blood. The best means to stimulate the skin is first to have the patient well washed with warm water and soap, then anoint it all over with oil, and then to slap the oil with a broad leather strap. Then uh, the hmm, okay. Yeah, it's not great. And then sure. to put the patient to some kind of work in the open air and sunshine. That will compel him to expand his lungs as chopping wood, splitting rails, and sawing the crosscut or the whipsaw. Such treatment in short time affect a cure. Yeah, so it's basically saying whip and put the black man to work as a cure to rascality. It's amazing how much medical pseudoscience there was to try to create some sort of ethical justification for slavery. 100%. It was dehumanization and some way of control through using fake science and medical language. Dr. Guthrie, I just wanted to basically just read off the book, this analysis, short analysis he did of this, because I feel like it's really applicable. But Dr. Guthrie, after explaining, you know, these awful disorders and quote unquote treatments from Dr. Cartwright wrote, following Thomas Saz's 1970 critique and guidelines and Anyone in psychology, if you haven't read uh, Thomas Saz's work about the kind of the falsibility of mental disorders, read it. It's amazing. The rationale for supporting drepitomania and rascality had extreme importance and relevance to the occurrence of racism and mental health because, one, it augmented the use of authority and vocabulary of medical science to dehumanize Black people. Two, it helped generate language and reasoning to justify coercive control of individual behavior. And three, the omission of this knowledge from textbooks and other pedagogy undermined the efforts to understand the basis of racism in psychology and psychiatry. So I think Dr. Grothry just puts it so amazingly how it, it's important to know this information because it did implicitly add those othering, dehumanizing basis of psychology towards Black and other minorities. Okay, so, you know, they continued with the race science um, to describe different kind of temperamental and personality traits that were automatically connected to race. And so we see them trying to describe, you know, white people, black people, Asian people, and American Indian um, and indigenous peoples as inherently different in their personalities and their temperamental traits. And they're always trying to do it in a way that places the white American and the European Americans as superior and as as uh, being you know the most reasonable and the most logical. Let me just read off some of these traits that these ethnical psychologists observed. <laughs> so, Homo Americanus. So this would be Indigenous Americans. Descriptions: reddish, choleric, 
erect, tenacious, contented, free, ruled by custom. Homo Europaeus, white Americans or Europeans. White, ruddy, muscular, stern, haughty, stingy, ruled by opinion. Homo Asiatis, Asian. Yellow, melancholic, inflexible, light, inventive, ruled by rights. And we could talk about that sometime, but just mm. the whole mystification of the Asian people. And then Homo Afer, so for Black and Africans. Black, phlegmatic, indulgent, cunning, slow, negligent, and ruled by caprice. So this really, like, you know that they tried to make it seem like they were being impartial, but it's completely biased and lacking all scientific, uh, systematic, like, studying or whatever. And uh, I like how they tried to put uh, some quote-unquote bad words, you know, some, like, maybe pros and cons for each person, but even the <laughs> European, like, the bad words are like, oh, stingy, which could also be seen as just, like, you know, smart with money or whatever. They Haughty, have too much oh. money. Yeah, tenacious. Like, it's, it's bullshit. Absolute bullshit. I would say my biggest weakness is that I care too much. Yeah, essentially. <laughs> it's bullshit. So that leads us to where they are trying to study neurology, and everyone knows about phrenology, so I won't cover that, but they were doing skull measurements. And they basically were looking at the shapes of skulls and inferring like how much of volume the brain would take up because of that skull, the skull shape. And so they reasoned that the Caucasians, quote unquote, I hate that term, but that's obviously the language they used at that time. Uh, the Caucasian's brain was the largest. It, the skull could carry the most weight of the brain. And so obviously that means they're the smartest. And black people had the smallest brain's capacity for the skull. So obviously it meant they were dumb, which is incorrect. And they were just having a big brain hour. Uh, so they really continued this inference that black people were less intelligent, more simple, could not think abstractly, could not control their impulses. And therefore, were destined by just living a life of simple labor. And they were often compared to apes because of weird ways of looking at the skulls compared to European skulls. Basically bullshit. You know, as I said, you know, whites were always portrayed as the possessing natural reason and physical perfection and the best freedom of thought. And I'm going to drag Carl Jung because he was secretly a shithead. <laughs> Unfortunately, secretly. I mean, some people still very much idolize him, so I don't know. Carl Jung was heard or heard, saw writing that the reason that the white Americans and American culture had any issue at all was because white people, quote, were living together with the lower races, especially the Negroes, unquote. Another psychologist who was pretty famous also said, Stanley Hall, Africans, Chinese, and Indians are adolescent races which he purported to be the reason why there's increased occurrences of mental disorders in the USA, which definitely followed from that, you know, the rhetoric of not trusting the degeneracy of the immigrants, uh, which were thought to have, you know, threatened the well-being of white people. Later, we find that psychometry or, you know, the uh, study and the measurement of cognition is incredibly biased. This could be a whole episode in its own. Uh, there's a really, really problematic history of measuring cognition to inherently show that Black people are dull-witted or basically any ethnic minority is dull-witted compared to white people. 
And the issue with psychometry is that they built all the narrative or all the norms off of white middle class educated populations. Wasn't there one like psychological test that was based on that like they would give to people, but it was based on like a hundred or some 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 small number of like white Minnesotan farmers or something? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of studies or a lot of a cognitive tests where it literally is just normed off of one area where the researcher is from and they <laughs> see that as normed for everyone else. It's really problematic oh, and it's still kind of an issue with cognitive testing that we don't have enough norms for like ethnic minorities and stuff like that. So, but for a while, they wouldn't even acknowledge that and they would obviously use it for pushing their narrative of the ethnic minorities as naturally dumb. Like just environment had nothing to do with it. Culture had nothing to do with it. It was inherent. They believed that intelligence was 100% biological, hereditary, and that oftentimes it was predisposed due to your race. A lot of the issues within psychometry actually has continued to really color the way people think about intelligence. Like IQ is fucking fake. Like if you guys don't know that by now and you're like, oh, I have a fucking 180 IQ, um, big brains. <laughs> like fuck you're, yeah, you got smart points. Good for you, Johnny. Or not Johnny. I love you, Johnny. I was just thinking of a basic name. Not our Johnny, but. <laughs> yeah, not our Johnny. Anyway, so obviously <laughs> these norms and materials were meant for and created for educated middle-class white people. They were culturally insensitive. They used colloquialisms that were norms within that culture. They used very like ethnocentric views of beauty and just like just ways of seeing things. And so they often conflate conflated whiteness with beauty, which was culturally insensitive for the black children they tested on. And there's a clear racist history of using this intelligence testing in ways that they specifically tested skills and forms of intelligence that would fit for the people that they were norming it off of. And so, you know, like Spearman, a very famous psychologist and psychometrist, created this concept of the G theory of intelligence, which is a general intelligence. But he was a piece of shit and he was using norms off of what would be best for <laughs> middle class educated white people. And his buddy Pearson even found that he was like doctoring up his data. He was being a total piece of shit. And then later, Lewis Terman, another kind of like famous psychometrist, was explicitly saying that racial differences were the complete reason for the testing discrepancies between intelligence recorded in the research. And there's this just big brain quote I gotta read. I just was so disgusted. Terman said, Mental retardation represents the level of intelligence, which is very, very common among Spanish Indians and Mexican families of the Southwest. Wow. And also among Negroes. Their dullness seems to be racial. Terman further wow. predicted that when IQ testing of these groups was done, quote, there will be discovered enormously significant racial differences, which cannot be wiped out by any scheme of mental culture. So he's completely discounting the sociocultural parts of testing intelligence and any of that basis. He was just explicitly being racist. Love that. Love that for us. <laughs> and he made that, I mean, obviously, like, the parameters he was using was, like, bullshit. But 
He said that before he even did the research, right? Yeah. So it's like another exam example of this racist confirmation bias. All these like rich white men who are academics or scientists in some form are like, yeah, I think that this is going to happen because I'm a racist piece of shit. So let me make it happen. Yeah. <laughs> and then, oh, I mean, God. I didn't talk about any of the examples of like the items on the test, but they were ridiculous. They were like colloquialisms that literally only the educated white middle classes would know like would have no applicability for intelligence for anyone that didn't fit within that like would not capture really the scope of what makes someone cognitively functional and very ethnocentric in its testing so yeah it's ridiculous they started to get even more like obsessed with like blood quantum shit relating to uh cognition it's very disgusting they would do ethnic based cognitive tests and they would further classify the ethnic minorities like for instance black people by saying if they were dark medium or light colored just to see if there were any you know discrepancies and even the white people couldn't even like get their shit together and their racist ideas because they couldn't decide whether mulatto people which unfortunately is a word to mean someone who's black mixed with white and it derived from the word mule uh they couldn't even decide whether being mulatto meant that they were smarter or dumber they didn't know if this, they would be smarter because they had white people in them or if they'd be dumber because they were mixed so they wanted to test the cognition of these individuals to kind of test those hypotheses and so this led to a lot of really fucked up ideals within you know obviously the black people weren't doing tests that they were culturally sensitive to so they basically declared that black people were the less in least intelligent of all of the minorities and all of the races and that they basically should not have a higher level education or education that involved anything other than basic labor skills they were to be designated to do basic labor for the rest of their lives. Cool enough, though, some Black graduate students started to slowly get into psychological programs, and a lot of them, unfortunately, not celebrated or known very well, even to this day, which I think is a sin. They spent their graduate careers trying to, you know, go against these theories and these racist research. For one person I really want to highlight is Dr. Horace Mann-Bond, who was a Black graduate psychologist who gave us the really important research that showed that testing rapport between examiner and examinee and cognitive testing makes a huge difference in the results you'll get. Like, that's such a basic necessity that in my cognitive class, I was like, hounded into us, like, you need to have good rapport. And further, he showed that when a Black child was tested by a Black psychometrician, the scores were markedly different because that shared rapport and that sense of safety, like social safety. It showed the power dynamics, race and ethnicity, and cognitive testing did matter. And when he created some norms based on kind of middle-class Black communities, the surprise, surprise, the Black children scored just as well as the middle-class white children. And he even found some children using their, their ideas of IQ at the time with like genius level IQ. So he, he was a really important part of that psychometric history. And I'm not going to get into their, their research, but other Black graduate students studying psychological research at that time, Herman Kennedy, Howard Long, Albert Beckham, and Martin Jenkins were all part of that push to 
fight against racist psychology. The intelligence testing obviously doesn't end there. Unfortunately, it contributed to a lot of eugenics and in the form of both anti-miscegenation laws and sterilization. So with this idea that intelligence is heritable, even though plenty of psychologists and researchers were showing that uh, your environment had just as much to do with your intelligence as your biology, there was still a big push to strengthen that idea that it was all biological because, of course, it kept that superiority of the white man. And so along with that you know, inheritance of the cognitive abilities, they also suggested that individuals inherited social traits and negative traits such as like criminality, quote, feeble-mindedness and sexual deviance, often which were all attached to being Black. And so these kind of ideas of the degenerate people often got attached to Blackness and poorness. And so with the increase in sterilization laws, they found ways of basically, quote-unquote, controlling these undesirables. And so for sterilization, in order to eliminate these negative, you know, social ills that were apparently biologically based psychology, behavioral and temperamental traits, started to become disgustingly common. Uh, they targeted ethnic minorities, poor and uneducated Americans. Between 1907 and 1940, around uh, 18,522 recorded Americans with mental disorders were surgically enforced sterilization, so vasectomy, stuff like that. But both males and females were forced into sterilization. They basically made it so that inmates of any state institution, um, on behalf of like the institutional boards, to be able to sterilize these patients if they were found to be, quote, idiotic, insane, feeble-minded, epileptic, or an imbecile. And this was the language they used. And often, mm. because of that idea that Blacks who were freed were insane, or slaves who ran away were insane, I'm sure you could see how these institutions were disproportionately made up of minorities. During the Buck v. Bell court hearing in 1927, that led way to legal precedents around sterilization of inmates of public institutions. So 30 states had adopted, you know, eugenic sterilization laws leading to over 60,000 Americans being sterilized. And so this is a really dark history, which has informed a lot of sterilization, kind of just like, and eugenics ideas around, unfortunately, neurodivergent people, but it obviously had its basis within explicit racism, um, just those undesirables. And these kind of legal behaviors and sterilization and eugenics acts actually inspired Hitler. So it's great to know that we are number one. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, American, American, uh, American exceptionalism. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, it's dark. I'm glad you brought up um, forced sterilizations in Buck v. Buck v. Bell because that was something that I wasn't able to cover. But it's a really illustrative example of how racism in medicine and psychiatry also links with the prison industrial complex. And so it's like you start to see how all of these institutions um, link together in the way that they promote and perpetuate racism. Yeah, they all work together for sure. And gosh, like 
if we had more time, there is so much having to do with like psychometry and and just sterilization and eugenics in general. Like eugenics was huge within the racist parts of psychology. It's ridiculous. And unfortunately, actually, we talked about this in my cognitive assessment course. Um, I can't remember what state, but one state still had on the books legal precedent around parents and guardians and I think some institutions of forced sterilization for individuals who were neurodivergent or had, you know, intellectual disability. So yeah, it's actually quite recent that some states still had that kind of shit in the books and and weren't repelled just for like it being swept under the rug or just, you know, not being paid attention to. I don't know if Kansas still does, but within my lifetime, it was legal to, if you were a parent of a neurodivergent child, to force them to be sterilized. Yeah. And it definitely came from this era and this rhetoric of trying to uh, get rid of, you know, degenerates and undesirables. It's really ridiculous. So it, it really is just like that slippery slope of what do they consider uh, desirable and what do they not? And oftentimes you cannot set, well, actually all times you can't separate that from cultural biases and discourse. So yeah, it's really scary to think of people who existed at that time, what they had to literally do to survive. Kind of moving out of these more specific examples, I just wanted to really quickly point out that kind of as we were talking earlier, the ability to become a psychologist and, and become a psychiatrist has always been very difficult for minorities and black individuals to obtain that kind of education because, you know, uh, psychology, psychiatry, and even the APA has been historically white dominated and very male dominated. And so a lot of their stuff have been created from that point of view and that stance. And I already covered how the APA president at times have said very explicitly racist shit and have had sometimes really shitty stances or don't even give stances on things like civil rights. And so we see a historical disregard towards Black psychologists in their training and access to education. They aren't celebrated for their work and their research. Like that psychologist, Dr. Horace Mann Bond, you know, like who learns about him? Nobody, but he was so important to our understanding of cognitive testing. We see how a lot of these things affect current psychological care and mental health well-being. Psychology is unfortunately and you know nobody learns this history of how dark it is but psychology tends to be very individualistic and ahistoric and it's in both its theoretical and clinical approach you know they don't talk about how these sociocultural historical events affect the current conditions of how individuals psychosocially behave and just perceive the world and so that has led to an overdiagnosis of like schizophrenia and intellectual disabilities in Black communities. There's a heightened amount of paranoia when we test for personality and psychological traits in Black individuals because they're based on white people. They're based on white norms. Racism isn't really understand understood within like common psychosocial well-being as much, I think, as it should be. Black youth described feeling uh, a lot of stigma and mistrust and feel like the treatment for psycho like psychological well-being as being ineffective. And so that's 
One of the barriers for why Black youth do not seek out mental health treatment. Oftentimes they are targeted for pharmacotherapy, so like medicine rather than a talk therapy or CBT or anything like that, which oftentimes is actually seen as being equally, if not as important as drug therapy. And so there's that additional layer of mistrust where they're just being pushed pills rather than being seen as a human. Further, there's a lot of Eurocentrism within the therapeutic approach. And if you have a white mental health practitioner who doesn't understand this history and doesn't have training and cultural competency, I don't blame these minorities at all for not wanting to seek out psychological treatment. They've actually found that, especially for Black individuals, they are more likely to use emergency and inpatient care, like more emergency style care for psychological well-being rather than preventative care or outpatient care uh, because they don't have that level of trust and the clinicians aren't effective because they haven't been taught how much this history of psychology is very racist. And it includes, you know, the ways in which we treat our clients. And so um, there's generally, you know, just worth mental health outcomes for racial and ethnic minorities, you know, depression, anxiety, and psychological distress are incredibly common, and it's understudied, uh, especially in Asian and Pacific Islander populations living in America. The excuse is always that the population isn't big enough to study, but there are pockets in the USA where there's definitely a higher preponderance, you know, of uh, these populations. So I honestly feel like it's just lazy and they don't really want to take themselves out of that white point of view. There's a lot of uh, clear factors of discrimination and stigmatization relating to this poor mental health outcome. They've found that, you know, experiences of discrimination is related clearly to deleterious effects on emotional well-being and cognitive functioning. And so it's really under important that we keep changing uh, and reworking what psychology means and understand that all the theories that we really study and celebrate come from white men. Uh, we need to push the new psychological theories and clinical frameworks from the point of view of minorities. Um, we're slowly starting to see this, but not enough. And there's a, a huge bottleneck for clinical psychologists. It's some of the most competitive programs out there, still very white dominated, still dominated by upper class individuals and a lot of military, the mm. ones who have GI bills. So we need, you know, psychological theories like liberation psychology, race-based trauma, and minority stress theory. Those are some of the most important, like, psychological constructs that I gravitate towards, but aren't really known that much about. You know, race-based trauma isn't really studied as much as it should be, but I feel like it really accounts for the discrimination and the experiences of ethnic minorities um, because it tries to frame that chronic and repeated feeling of distress and just trauma that you experience when it's directed towards your race and when it's discrimination. And they're starting to, uh, Dr. Carter is trying to conceptualize it within another form of post-traumatic stress. And then minor, minority stress theory honestly just talks about how those chronic experiences of uh, discrimination and stigma clearly contribute to worse mental health well-being, depression, anxiety, um, and in some frameworks within like the cognitive stress framework would say that, you know, those experiences of 
stigma and discrimination overload one's ability to cognitively modulate that stuff. And so you uh, find yourself unable to function at a level of cognitive efficiency because you're always having to have this kind of distrust and and this constant monitoring and this constant um, fear and anxiety around being discriminated against. So, you know, some researchers are starting to do it, but it's sadly a reality that there's not enough research. I think it's poignant to point out that the person who conceptualized the idea of microaggressions is an Asian American psychologist, and yet not many people know Dr. Daryl Wing Su. They know microaggressions, but they don't understand how importantly where it came from and why it was created. So yeah, these are a lot of the ways that this history has affected the shifting field of psychology today, but there's still so much work to do. And don't get me fucking going on social psychology and evolutionary psychology. Oh my God. That's another episode. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Dog shit in that uh, recently. Yeah. Yeah. So that was just a very general overview of oh, just the the mess and just the just the egregious kind of research that came out of those racist point of views within psychology and psychiatry. Well, so if you're a psychologist, uh, fuck you. Uh, no that's that's not the takeaway hopefully um (laughs) you gotta do some learning though for sure jesus christ yeah if you're a medical professional listening to this like please go learn things thank you for sharing alex that was a lot of information that i didn't know including where microaggressions came from and whose research that term was coined from yeah for sure there's a lot of really important, I think, research that get, you know, pulled away from the researcher because they're not a white male. We see celebration of psychologists always towards the white male. You know, everyone knows Freud. A lot of people know Spearman and Thorndike, and I could go on and on. Like, literally, Psych 101 is celebrating all white men psychologists. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of important contributions to the field of psychology from minorities and women psychologists that get separated from those identities and aren't talked about or celebrated as much. Uh, Yeah. So that's super interesting about like microaggressions and it's just, it's not super related, but like, I just, I feel bad how that, that concept and other, other kind of related concepts in regards to what would get considered quote unquote identity politics is that uh, like it gets kind of co-opted by liberals and then it kind of Mm -hmm. like they get, so a lot of people have a bad taste in their mouth when they hear um, those sorts of ideas, which like sucks because they're they're really important, interesting ideas based in like actual, you know, historical analysis of how people interact with systems and stuff. But oh yeah, it it definitely contributes to racial gaslighting, where people when they finally speak up about the prejudice experiences they have are told that that's not real, that that's not happening. And that's not the intention that the person had. Talk to any person who has had to question whether that microaggression existed or not. If you had to question it, it probably was a microaggression. And it's just that society and white supremacy has told you to not trust your feelings. Feels bad, man. I would love to have a discussion at some point 
on identity politics and the difference between liberal and radical identity politics because that's mm -hmm. one thing that frustrates me in leftist circles when people shut down when folks are speaking from the experience of their marginalized identity and how that impacts them and then it's just completely ignored because it's written off as purely sort of liberal identity politics instead of something that needs to be considered as a material reality. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A yeah. legitimate experience. And I think I would love to talk about about that. I would love to talk about that too, because Dr. Uh, Sue also talks about how that is, I think he conceptualizes it within different racial realities, quote unquote. And I just love that because the white person can so easily live within their reality and not realize the damage they're doing because it doesn't affect them. So mm -hmm. his his book about, if you want to learn about microaggressions, his book about them is amazing. Very illustrative and so eloquently written. I, I think you just said this, and now I uh, suddenly can't remember. He's the one who coined that term? Yeah, he coined microaggressions, and he's done a lot of research about it. Yeah, so I mean, like that's that's like almost that's a, that's a similar kind of thing to like what happened with um, emotional labor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, where that was like that was it came up from the sociologist Arlie Hochschild and like talking about a specific like thing that workers have to do, and then like workers and specifically like often women or people who are read as women, and and then it kind of went through the like internet liberal like meat grinder and now it kind of now it means like when oh when my boyfriend asked me how my day was and i have to tell him like <laughs> <laughs> yep so that sucks like because yeah so i mean that sucks how these terms get sort of just mangled by well yeah basically mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah it's so frustrating when when things like emotional labor or microaggressions or identity politics comes from a significantly analyzed perspective like folks who have experienced it and they've written about it and like it it happens and then they come up with a term that really illustrates their experience and then it's just right taken into like the internet meat grinder for lack of like a, a better way to say that and then just like spit out in something that's not what it was meant to be. And it's like so controlled by hegemonic narratives that it's like you just took the terms that like marginalized people were using and like turned it against them. It's really fucked up. It's gaslighting. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, and there's too. another one too. Yeah. And then like intersectionality and all that. But yeah. Oh. No, I mean, it's like it's the words, like people come up with uh, words to describe how they are interacting with yeah these systems and with uh like mm. capitalism and and patriarchy and all these different yeah harmful systems and then those words get like taken and like have all of their radical content stripped out of them exactly it's also ahistorical how they do it because they're only relying on their individual take on these things because obviously they're liberals so it's very individualistic <laughs> and on their on their terms even though all these words are built upon history and history of evaluating how marginalized people go through things. Like intersectionality, for example, is not just Dr. Crenshaw's work. It's Dr. Crenshaw's work and the work she was studying from previous. It was Audre Lorde, then it was Bell Hook, then it was, and then it just keeps going. Like it's, right. and it's not even just like timelines. It's just like circles of people who are in constant conversation. So you're not just misquoting one person 
and one scholar, you're misquoting a whole field of people. That's like yeah. so boggling because it delegitimizes whole study, not just studies, because I don't want to say that all of these things are only legitimate through academia, but right. like it delegitimizes so many people and their own work and how much thought they had to do with these things. And yeah. if another freaking liberal puts on their status, I'm an intersectional feminist, <laughs> I'm going to literally ruin <laughs> their net. Like, you know, that doesn't mean anything. You're not, it's not about diversity. It's about, he doesn't, uh hate it. Well, and I think <laughs> importantly with what you're saying, Alex, is that it discounts, as we've talked about, how difficult it is for minorities mm -hmm. to not only speak up, but also to even get into academia and talk about mm. these things. It's discounting how much of a struggle they had to do to even push forward these theories because you know you have to fight to mm -hmm. create any kind of literature around things that dismantle you know racism mm -hmm. patriarchy etc so yeah it, it really is just a slap in the face to all that hard work um if so i will say it is emotional labor for me to read a liberal's thoughts on intersectionality <laughs> so, okay i'm done i'm done that's not a thing but <laughs> um well anyone else uh anyone else got anything to to get in there i sort of just as a general wrap up yeah. um thing just wanted to say like we've talked about racism as it affects medicine, as it has, and, and psychiatry, as it has existed through these institutions, as it still is relevant in the practices that go on today. It's so important for us to know the history of racism in medicine and psychiatry and why it's there. It's there to protect whiteness, to promote whiteness and white supremacy. And it still functions as that in in modern medicine and modern psychiatry, even if it doesn't look the same, the goal is the same. It's still upholding white supremacy. And obviously psychiatry is so helpful and mo modern medicine is so helpful and like definitely a necessity. I think something that we've pointed out in this episode is it's, it's not just a question of access, but like when folks actually do get access to this necessity, there are just still so many barriers and so many barriers in what people are taught as psychiatrists and medical professionals and what they continue to practice with the information that they continue to practice with that harms their patients. Often when I'm in conversations with other people in public health about racial health disparities, we talk about barriers to getting to the clinic. We don't talk about what happens in the clinic. And it's so important to understand that, like, if you're a practicing professional and you, you are not re-educating yourself, you're not combating this prejudice that has always existed within science, then you're treating your patients with that same information. You're treating them with misinformation and you're going to lead to, like, them having a lower quality of life or them dying. Um, and that, to, for me, as, like, a sick person is so important to point out because I go to the doctor's office and I get gaslit constantly. And so like I'm someone in a in a mart who's from a marginalized identity being a sick person having this disability who is mistreated because of the way that medic medicine functions and like I can see it 
affecting my life. And so it's so important for me to try to get that through that, like, you're, you're going to kill someone. Like, that's the bottom line. If you're practicing psychiatry or medicine and you're not facing this misinformation, this historical misinformation, you're going to kill someone. 100%. And like, just thinking about psychiatry and psychology in general, with that same kind of line and importance, like not only for individuals who have extreme mental disorders, but beyond that, without getting the care and with that racial gaslighting and that further marginalization within the areas that are supposed to help them, no wonder there's higher levels of suicidality. No wonder there's higher levels of paranoia. No wonder there's higher levels of anxiety amongst these marginalized communities. So we really need to understand how these things have come about and why the systems contribute to that. And so this was a thick, depressing <laughs> episode, but it also uh, is hopeful that we're able to talk about these things and point out the research so that people who are going into the fields or even already in those fields can reconsider how they've been contributing to these uh, dynamics that are harmful. Yeah, uh, that was, that was, that was grueling. I, not, I mean, not that it was like, it was difficult to listen to, not, not because you all are bad at talking, but just because the content is, uh, that was, that was rough. That was like, uh, that was, that was a rough one. God damn. Well, uh, yeah, thank, if you made it this far, um, good work. Uh, sorry. But no, I, I, yeah, I agree. It's all, it's all really important. This, yeah, it's, it's really important to understand because it, yeah, it's, it's the same reason it's important to understand any history. Like, there's, we have hundreds of years of this shit that informs what's happening today. And so it's very important to understand why that happens so that we can help make it not that way if that's if that's the thing that we're yeah like if you're in the medical field or if you have access to these uh these systems or like like the the people who part recreate these systems yeah try and uh try and fix this um no it's just like yeah i, I don't i'm, I'm not, i don't know what you're gonna do but like uh you gotta do something Anyway. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, even if you're not part of the medical field, um, the sort of where I pointed the purpose of what I was saying, it's still important to know. It's important to know as a patient. Um, unfortunately, yes, like yeah. people, their patients have to advocate for themselves. And if you know a little bit more about like why medicine is fucked up, maybe that'll give you some more support when you have to advocate for for yourself. For me, it does. It's shitty and no one should have to do that, but it's just good information to know. And if you do know anyone in the medical field, like it is good to have these conversations if you can. I think people are surprised on the impact that you can make on one person and that one person can make a great impact on all of their patients or whatever way they're involved in the medical field. Yeah, and, and I think another thing that's important, even if you're not a doctor or a nurse or CNA or anybody in that in the entire system, um, or a psychologist, a, a PA, like any, any, anything like this, even if you're, yeah, you're just, you're just someone like me who I occasionally go to the doctor um, when my insurance will allow me. But like, 
it's it also just helps to understand like when you're looking at I, I guess I guess just like narratives about people's health and about biology and people's bodies and all of that, just it's good to be aware of the like harmful just the the constant harmful shit that is like being laundered to us all. I, I mean, so specifically what I'm thinking about right now is like the whole narrative around fat people. And it's like, oh, well, uh, that's uh, like, I've, I've said that before. And then people are like, oh, well, don't you don't don't say fat like this bad word. Well, it's not. And this is coming from my wife who identifies as a fat person. It's like, that's not a bad word. It's 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 been moralized. And so like, yeah. And so specifically for for fat or quote unquote overweight people, like, yeah, you go to the doctor and it's like, oh, well, uh, you should probably like lose some weight. And it's like, well, no, there's a specific issue that like I can point out right here. And a lot of times it's like, no. And then specifically with like the fat phobia in the medicine field, there's, I, there's been, there's strong arguments that I've read and I'll see if I can find them, put them in the sources about like the specific like fat phobia in specifically the medicine field go coming from uh, racism. Oh yeah. 100%. Coming from things that like, like, like body types that are, that you find more, common in specific ethnic groups or or whatever and those traits because they're associated with the with this ethnic group or group of people then they become they become just negative traits on their own like de deracialized even in the mind of the person doing it yeah it's so it, it's all it's all super complicated we just have this like fractally fucked society where no matter what uh level you look at it on you find something equally or more fucked up so yeah, that's that's uh, drag, but but yeah, no, it's this was this was very good information, difficult to listen to, but um, yeah, thank you, thank you all for for doing this research and for these contribution, your contributions to just this like discourse here, and and yeah, and for for teaching us uh, about about this stuff. Thanks for hosting. <laughs> yeah, well, and thank you all for listening. We could be back. We could be recording in person soon because. Um, we are all, I think all of us are, there's either on the horizon or in various stages of being vaccinated, all or most. So that's exciting. And I think, and we were talking before the show, this is the, it was in April of 2020 that we started Invent the Future. We have not done 12 episodes, but, <laughs> but we have done, we've done several and, and there've been, and there've been some, some very good ones here. And so happy anniversary to the rest of my Invent the Future homies, and here's to in-person recording and more, more exciting and good information. Yay! Woohoo! Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening. Yeah. Thanks Bye. for listening, everybody. Bye. <laughs> thanks oh, for listening. Alex. Take it easy. Thank you.
Crazy, 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 crazy. I thought that.